0: And welcome to this week's edition of an organic conversation, the show about food, ecology, stories from the land, recipes, nature, sustainability, interconnectedness, relationships, and life itself. What is sacred? What is sacred in our lives? What are we truly revering and honoring? What are we willing to fight for and protect to never surrender? That's what we're asking in this hour, inspired by a new documentary that is just now coming to a movie theater near you, hopefully. The documentary is called Standing on Sacred Ground and we are speaking with the producer Toby McLeod today on an organic conversation with another very special guest. Sacred Grounds, protecting the relationship to place, our topic today. We are your hosts, Helga Helberg, Mark Bouquet. and
1: to Rani Balomar. And before we dive into today's topic, which I'm really, really looking forward to, we were having a re- an interesting discussion in the production office with a new bit of news regarding the food stamp program. Because the House of Representatives passed a bill recently that will cut billions of dollars from the food stamp program over the next decade, I believe. And, and part of what their their, um, their justification for it is that looking at the trend, they're noticing that more money was being put into the food stamp program while employment rates were going up. So it seemed to be a disparity to them, but I don't think that it's that cut and dry. I mean, at least from my perspective, it seems like what's being communicated here is the cost of living is going up and we had a really great episode last year with Carl Robillard who um, is the director at the St. Anthony Foundation and one of the things that he was saying as far as that shelter is concerned they have a lot of people who come to that shelter for food and they're working two jobs just to cover their rent just to pay for other basic living expenses so, so the amount that they're making is not enough to also pay for food so it just it seems like there's much more to this issue than just the fact that, well, employment rates are going up, and yet we're still putting money into a food stamp program. I I, I can see how that's still the case.
2: Well, for me, it always comes down to is, is, let's look at the whole, if you look at the whole picture, what sort of jobs are being produced? Are they jobs where people can afford to feed their family by working one job? Are they jobs where they have to have, still have two or three? Yes, there may be more jobs available, but what sort of jobs are those? Minimum wage. Are they minimum wage? What are, You know, what are they? And if you also look at the fact that the WIC programs are now under under fire too, the women and infa- infant children, there's over 8.9 million women and children under five living near or below the poverty line who won't get any assistance on learning how to breastfeed or if they need formula, those types of things. So I I just comes down for me is like why do we always target the people who who have the least uh, amount of resources available to them, and also, you know, when you look at the whole budget, what does that actually work out to?
0: Yeah, speaking of targeting um, and speaking of the whole budget, uh, so to put it in perspective, 15% of the U.S. population, 15%, which equals about 50 million people, um, are, live in food insecurity. Uh, That's a Gigantic number, of course, fifteen percent, and if you then look at our overall spending in our household budget um, as a country, we are spending sixty percent six zero on the military complex we're spending six percent on education, and one percent goes to food so i w- I would love to see the um, you know the cuts in military spending at the same page as we are cutting food support for you know, pregnant women and children and farmer's markets, SNAP programs, like all that, which actually went back into the economy. I know um, running a farmer's market myself in Point Reyes Station as part of Marin Organic, uh, we had several $10,000 a year on food stamp program uh, coupons once the government allowed that those could be spent at farmer's markets. So people are using it to buy really good, healthy Uh, food for them, vegetables. Yeah, the SNAP program is all about
2: about giving people the opportunity to buy fresh fruits and vegetables, and that also helps the local farmers.
0: That's right, and we would reimburse the farmer for every coupon they got, so there was a real cash exchange, and it would help the local economy. Those programs make sense on so many levels, in addition to addressing food insecurity. But yeah, shocking numbers, really, when you look at it, 1% on food and agriculture as part of the budget, 6% education, and 60% military spending.
2: Well, and the interesting thing is if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, he talks about on the very bottom of the pyramid that you see and we can we'll put that up on our Facebook page is that just taking care of <clears throat> your basic needs in order to be the best person and contribute the most in in society and in life, you have to have your basic needs taken care of, which would, would yeah, start with shelter, food, yeah, and yeah, shelter. Mm-hmm.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Speaking of Facebook, you can follow us on com or facebook.com forward slash And we are now also streaming live as a video podcast on TalkStreamNetwork.com. Check it out. And Sita, you brought up um, a show on the changing face of hunger in this country. We actually have a show coming up with Carl again as our guest, Carl Robilar from the St. Anthony Foundation here in San Francisco um, in just a few weeks. So check us out and check out the upcoming programming on AnOrganicConversation.com. Again, our topic today is um, standing on sacred ground. What is sacred here on Anaganic Conversation? I'm Helge Helberg. I'm
1: Mark Bouquet. And I'm Sitarani Palomar.
0: We have two fantastic guests um, who are part in different capacities of a new documentary that is called Standing on Sacred Ground. That is coming up here in just a minute, but before we dive into our daily topic fully, here's our weekly tip from the world of health and beauty. Here's our on chef Sita and her holistic bite.
1: Thank you Helga. Well, we are officially heading into the holidays. I may be jumping the gun a little bit, but now that we're in November, it's on my mind. And when I start to think about the holidays, I have such a sensory memory of what the holidays smell like and what they sound like. Laughter and what they taste like. Maybe cookies and casserole and all of your senses get involved in this recollection of what it means to be the holiday season. And Something that's really powerful for me is scent. And it's actually a really powerful thing for everybody. But, but I have specific scents that I think about during the holidays. Pine and cranberry and vanilla and orange, orange. and cinnamon <laughs> and all kinds of things. Exactly. Helga, you're going the same place. And, and a lot of people choose to buy scented candles that are holiday themed this time mm-hmm. of year. But something that, that concerns me about that, and this has been something that's been a topic of discussion for a, a handful of years now, is that you can get candles that are, are made from paraffin wax. And paraffin is a petroleum product, mm-hmm. which has a lot of concerns. And we're going to dive more fully into that topic later in this episode. But one thing they're noticing is that these are not necessarily clean Burning, You know, you may not want somebody to smoke in your house, but do you think about the smoke and potential pollutants that are being put into the air by burning a candle? And even soy candles, which are plant-based, that some people think are a really great alternative, they they could be and very likely are made from genetically modified soy. So then you've got the artificial fragrance angle, which I know produces headaches for a lot of people. So I'm thinking about this important part of the holidays to me, which is the scent experience. And how do you get that and eliminate all of these concerns? And I want to share a tip that I learned from a friend of mine who's a realtor. This is wild. I was so amazed when I first walked in. The whole house smelled like cinnamon. And I, and I could not figure out how she got such a, uh, an intense and, and authentic aroma through the house. And when I walked into the kitchen, she had a saucepan with simmering cinnamon sticks in it. <laughs> Mm -hmm. All she did was she put real cinnamon sticks into a pot and just enough water to cover it and simmered it. And the aroma just lifted up with the steam and the whole house smelled like cinnamon. (laughs) And so it got me thinking about these things that we think of as classic holiday scents. Pine. You could take fresh rosemary and simmer that in your saucepan. Orange. You could take orange peel and mm-hmm. simmer that with water in your saucepan. You could do a combination, cinnamon-orange, pine-orange, whatever this comes, whatever this conjures for you. You can come up with a way to fill your house with this aroma that's very clean, very natural, and honestly, it's not that much different than if you bake cookies and then the whole house smells like you're making chocolate chip cookies. I like that. It's a similar thing. <laughs> so I, I encourage you to think about what scent means holiday to you. And how do you recreate that as naturally as possible with really possibly something that is easier and less expensive than going to buy a candle at the store? So that was this week's Holistic Bite.
0: Thank you, Sita. Wow, fun. And it is one of my
2: favorite things. You could put garlic, right? Because walking into a house where garlic is being cooked on a stove, even if nothing else is being cooked, the scent of garlic being sauteed (laughs) is enough to make you go running for the kitchen. I'll tell you that right now. (laughs) And secondly, you know, we're in the time of darkness, right? We're moving into the time of darkness, and candles will play a much bigger role in many of our homes and being in that time of creating light in the darkness in your home i would think that's even more important for you to you know just pay attention to what that is doing for you because beeswax candles which i which i burn as often as i can you know have such a wonderful Scent to them. It's real subtle, but it's just enough to, and, and the light is actually a little bit mm. different coming off a of beeswax candle, too. Warmer. Um, it, it's, it's, it's just got a little, warmer, yeah. and then if you have like cinnamon or something on the stove along with that light, it just creates a whole different feel for you during this time, especially going into the holidays and stuff
0: like yeah, that. Yeah, and if you want to experience a Italian holiday, go to Mark's house. It all smells <laughs>
2: like garlic.
1: <laughs> garlic and cinnamon.
2: <laughs> weird. Cinnamon in the
0: no, morning, great. garlic <laughs> at <laughs> night. Whatever it. you like, whatever works <laughs> for you, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I have a, a, already an appointment. I won't be able to <laughs> join you this year. That's great. You're listening to An Organic Conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy.
1: And I'm Sitarani Palomar.
0: Our topic today is Standing on Sacred Ground. There's a new documentary that is just now coming to movie theaters around the country, hopefully near you, uh, Standing on Sacred Ground, really looking at our relationship to place. And that's our topic today. We have two phenomenal guests, that
3: and more, when we come back right after the break. Stay tuned. Are you a chef? Have a catering business or planning a party or simply just love organic produce? If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, walk right in to Earl's Organic Produce. Anyone can buy directly from us at wholesale prices. You don't have to be a natural food store to enjoy the freshest and most delicious organic produce. We are located on the San Francisco Produce Market at 2101 Gerald Avenue. We look forward to seeing you. walk hours are Monday through Friday throughout the night from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. Minimum purchase is one box or flat, cash or checks only. For more information, visit Earl's Organic
4: Fry Vineyards Mendocino County award-winning wines without added sulfites, available at grocery stores and online at frywine.com. That's f r e y w i n
1: e dot com. You're listening to an organic conversation.
0: I'm Helga Helberg.
2: I'm Mark Mulcahy.
0: And I'm
1: Sitarani Palomar.
0: And we are talking about a new documentary that is now coming to the United States, Standing on Sacred Ground, which inspired us to ask the question today, what is sacred? What is sacred in our lives? What are we truly revering and honoring and willing to stand up for and fight for if needed? Um, We are speaking today with the filmmaker of Standing on Sacred Ground, Toby McLeod, who is joining us today, the producer and director. And also, Colleen Sisk, spiritual leader and chief of the Winnemem um, Wintu tribe near Mount Chester. Welcome to the show, both of you. Lovely to have you. <laughs> Thank
2: you. <laughs> and Toby, so I know this is probably the obvious question you've gotten at every film festival that you've been, been part of, but what inspired you to even take this project on?
5: Well, I have worked for about 30 years on environmental films uh, dealing with indigenous people's rights. And while I have focused on things like uh, coal strip mining and uranium mining and water issues, uh, what I've heard back from the indigenous leaders is that there's a spiritual dimension to the environmental crisis that Westerners are blind to and that that spiritual disconnection from the earth that I think we're all familiar with Mm Um, If it isn't healed, then this violence to the earth is going to continue. So sacred places for indigenous people are as important that they be protected as these kind of environmental threats. Uh, as, As important as keeping those out, strip mines and radioactive waste, it's important to respect and understand the sacred mountains and the sacred springs and the origin places that all traditional people around the world, not just in the United States, have sacred places link many of these indigenous cultures, and my job, as I interpreted it some years ago, was to try to translate the importance of spiritual places to a Western audience.
2: So, do you think that Western society does is blind to it, or they just had, they just haven't had their eyes open? Like at a young age, they maybe that we or or Western society wasn't didn't create that opening in their lives where they just became just as important to them as something else?
5: Well, an original strategy of conquest is not, uh, it, the sacred sites were seen very clearly and they were taken and they were destroyed, the trees were cut down, the leaders were killed, churches were built where the sacred groves had been. So I think originally there was a real visual uh, you know, connection and awareness of the, the spiritual power and the political power and the cultural cohesion that comes from sacred places. So some hundreds of years ago, that was a strategy of conquest. Uh, since then, I think that uh, languages have been banned, ceremonies have been banned, history is not taught, so I think a blindness has set in. It's kind mm-hmm. of like a, you know an amnesia, a cultural amnesia. I think Kaleen will agree that Native people have suffered some of that as well because when the language is banned and the places are taken away and you can't get there to do your ceremony um, then everyone forgets and it needs to be reawakened. What we see now over the last ten years is a reawakening, cultural reawakening and for me a hopeful sign that uh, you know I think it comes out of the, it's, it's connected to the organic food movement. You have people who are just waking up and realizing the violence has to stop. We need to be healthy. And so you have people from the 60s and 70s who sort of thought war is stupid and you know, bombing people is a bad idea, uh, waking up and taking over positions of authority in foundations and in government, National Park Service rangers, um, people who, and, and indigenous people are going to law school and learning how to be, you know, taking over these positions that so within the tribe they can now lead and, and connect these issues. So I see hope now that there is an awareness does that mean there's a respect? No, not yet. There's not. These, you know, these battles have a long way to go until people like Kaleen have sovereignty and control over their sacred places.
0: So, Kaleen, um you're the spiritual leader and chief of the Winnemem Wintu tribe near Mount Shasta, and you're part of that documentary series, which is a, a series of films. Um, that are now being shown and hopefully even make it onto everyone's TV soon, and we can talk about that in a minute. But what Mark is referring to is there's this kind of institutionalized religion. um, And we had a conversation before the show, and Mark was saying, it's interesting, nobody would ever propose um, building a strip mall in the Vatican Right Or taking the Vatican down altogether because we found some silver or nickel or whatever mineral might there be in the ground um that would be that would that would be unthinkable. Nobody would g- go forward with that, and yet, when it comes to sites that are much older, ten thousand fifty thousand years in some of 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 your um examples in the movie, somehow nature doesn't have that institutionalized sense to it and with that no rights what do you do to make it as equally important as anything we have created um, and how can, you, how can you give it the right of spiritual sites basically how can they create how can you can create a right for them to exist
4: um, that's a really good question and, <laughs> and we've been struggling for a long long time you know, it wasn't until 1978 that we actually have the religious freedoms to participate in our own ceremonies. But now, since 1985, my tribe and many tribes in California have somehow slipped through that right, and we no longer have the right to practice our own ceremonies. So, so what a you long what you're saying is, it wasn't
0: just the sites that were taken; it was actually your culture that was taken. Your right to practice whatever you please to to practice right. right
4: and and see through it's through the indigenous peoples that places are identified as sacred other than you know people coming onto to something saying oh this is very beautiful there are many very beautiful places that are not of the sacred and the sacred is the teacher of the people is the teacher of the of that part of the world and so that is so misunderstood by this Um, by the United States in what it's doing. And of course, the economic development is more important and we're always compared to other churches and that since we're not a uh, faith-based church and we are out in nature and we have been there, uh, it seems like that is less than and more able to uh, try to move on to it.
0: It's so interesting to know that the U.S. National Park Service established these geographically beautiful areas, Yosemite, Yellowstone, Um, and yet our awareness for the spiritual part, and I would love to hear from you what makes a site a spiritual site, um, is is somehow completely forgotten or it's you know i was i'm a great fan of national parks and now i feel like they're only meeting us halfway because what they're addressing is protecting the natural beauty and biodiversity and resources but the spiritual aspects which is as literal um for you and and many people um that have a connection to it is completely left out
4: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I know it's
0: not big question. And, I'm and just, <laughs> Kaleen, you
1: you bring up something that was really profound for me in watching in watching this documentary. There's, th- I, I have pages of quotes that just moved me because I think that this speaks to the spirit in all of us. And and one thing that occurred for me while you were speaking, which is, I think the quote is in the fourth the fourth part of the documentary, but somebody says that the Western society doesn't understand a need to have a spirituality that links them to the land upon which they live. And in, in the first part of the documentary, which is which focuses on your tribe, I remember a scene where you go to a spring and, and the conversation that happens there, I don't want to give too much away, but somebody says that it's it's indicative of what we need to prepare for the way that you're observing the land and that seems to be a crucial missing link for most of western societies because they don't recognize the spiritual relationship to land they're missing these keys on how to prepare better for the life ahead of us and it and it foreshadows just a slice of what's at stake as we lose more sacred sites around the world can you can you speak to that
4: well the only the only thing i was, i'm thinking about that is, is that uh, for things to be spiritual in, in our world, there is a give-and-take relationship with a place, meaning I'm just as respectful at the spring. I will need, I, I don't leave anything there. I don't take anything from there. It is so blessing that it is our privilege to be there and to receive those blessings. But also, we carry the prayer back to the sacred place and let them know how the people are doing. So it's a give and take, which most people don't understand that uh, a sacred place is is an all-teaching place.
0: We're speaking with Chobi McLeod, the filmmaker of Standing on Sacred Ground today, and also Colleen Sisk, spiritual leader and chief of the Winnemem Wintu tribe near Mount Chester, a new documentary that uh, is coming to movie theaters right now and also maybe onto TV. Yes. We hope so. We've uh, cut the four hours to PBS length.
5: We've gotten some funding from PBS and it is our intention to try to reach the largest audience through public television, but ultimately the film I think is going to have its biggest impact in communities and where it sparks dialogue and people can speak afterwards about what it stirs up in them in terms of what's missing and what they've experienced in terms of spiritual connection to land.
0: Um, and in schools, uh, this is an educational project that we have yeah. ahead of us. And more information is on sacredlands.org. Um, we'll dive more into that topic. Uh, I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And
1: I'm Rani Palomar.
0: You're listening to An Organic Conversation. Our topic today is Sacred Grounds, Protecting the Relationship to Place. That and more when we come back. Stay tuned.
1: NextSpace brings together a professional, collaborative workspace with a warm, supportive community. It's a place where you can do your very best work. And now, NextSpace is introducing NextKids, a workspace that also provides great on-site child play care. Hi, I'm Diana Rothschild, founder and chief mom of NextKids. We believe that you can be a better parent and produce better work when you seamlessly integrate work and life. We're better together. Join this conversation at NextKids.us. You're listening to An Organic Conversation.
0: I'm Helge Helberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And
1: I'm Sitarani Palomar.
0: Our topic today, Sacred Grounds, protecting the relationship to place. And with us is the filmmaker of a new four-part series that is coming to movie theaters and hopefully to PBS soon. Um, standing on Sacred Ground, Toby McLeod, And he brought with him the chief and spiritual leader, of the Winnemem Wintu tribe near Mount Chester from the McLeod River, uh, Killeen Sisk. Um, Toby, I want to give you a a huge compliment and um, I hope I can get this across without really tearing up, but when I watched your documentary, what I realized was the question, wow, what if this is true? What if these spiritual sites actually are not a concept? What if it's not chosen because the reverence lives in us, and we need to place it somewhere. But what if these sites actually exist, and these nature spirits exists, which I really need to say that before that was a beautiful notion of being fully human, but i it, I never got it. I never experienced mm-hmm. um, the the feeling of, "Wow, what if he is right what if what if actually this all that world actually exists, and we are taking it now, so beautifully. Um, documented really in your films and that is my question to you what's at stake with the loss of those sites around the world really
5: well thank you for your reaction and uh, it makes me happy because that's of course <laughs> what we're trying to awaken in people is that a heart happy connection to <laughs> and that question of what what if uh, we were, were missing something yes. and I take my cues uh, from people like Calleen and the in- amazing indigenous leaders around the world who have a uniform message that the earth is a living being and that there are places on the earth observed over many generations where this conversation and this ability to listen and find a path into the future and adapt to change and know how to heal where that information comes if you speak the right language. And it isn't necessarily that complicated. It's a very, we've evolved as human beings partly because we, we did listen and we did participate in that conversation. We've succeeded. Because we have honored these sacred places, and we have taken health, we have given blessings and offerings. We've uh, and Cal- Kalene's not—it's not a metaphor. Calleen was taught there are twenty sacred mountains around the world, and that they're linked, and that they hold the earth in balance, and that this is not sort of an idea. This is a teaching that needs to be understood and worked with amongst the native people. So, one of the things Calleen said to me some years ago is. You know, these different indigenous people have been sort of isolated in the 40s and 50s and 60s and just just trying to survive. And so one question Colleen threw at me when we worked on a film earlier was, who's out there, what traditional people are out there doing their ceremonies and protecting their sacred places the way they were instructed to? That's what we're trying to do, Mm -hmm. and we're having a heck of a hard time doing this. But So I literally, on this film series, went off looking. And boy, there are a lot of people out there doing their ceremonies, and we were able to film them, (laughs) and now we're able to sort of encourage meetings and the strengthening of a network and as some of the indigenous people are saying when they come together physically their sacred places come together Mm. so not only are they strengthened as individuals and their, but the sacred places are strengthened so there's there's sort of a mysterious process going on here I feel like a sort of a humble servant you're
0: saying that in the film once where you um, refer to or somebody is referring to like if we don't Work with the gods, they just might think, you know. Yeah. Do you, I, I,
1: I don't have every word <laughs> down, care. but it was one that really hit for me too, which was if we don't show up and sing and chant and give ceremony at these sacred places, the gods will forget we care, and nature will forget, Mother Nature will forget we need her.
0: Yeah, and you were referring, Mm Sita, to to that Mm -hmm. scene where you walk up the mountain and for the first time ever, maybe, or in a very, very, very long time, that spring at Mount Chester was actually dry. And so, Toby, you you just, again, said that, that um, it is no longer the metaphor and it's no longer the science of that some scientists could explain why there's no water right now. Um, Who are we, scientists' body, to say, yes, that is true, and why is it not also true that this is, uh, you know, a a living thing, the spring in itself, showing us right now, singing to us that it's dry, telling us a story that we are on the wrong path here. Um, Very beautiful. Mark.
2: It's hard to, um, I mean, I just have been in, Involved in the listening of everything that's being said here. And so for this, just for a second there, I was just, I was lost. Not lost, actually <laughs> no, you found. Were found. found. <laughs> um, but, I, but I was just there listening to what you were saying and, and, and talking about the places that you're talking about and the coming together of people, which interestingly enough with the advent of the Internet and with the advent of communication on that level is actually can bring people together that probably would have never gotten together right. ever in their lives. Right, so there's a huge power there. So, what in the movie when I was watching it, it, uh, there was a gentleman in the movie who said that the sites are like acupuncture points on your body in on the earth, and they allow you in to that place. So, what what Mm -hmm. what creates a sacred site? Where? how do you know that? You know, how do you, how, does, how does that how does that create it? How does that known? I, I don't know, sure if I'm not sure if I'm asking the question the way I mean to ask it. But you know, how do you know it's a sacred site?
4: Yeah. Um, one is that everybody before me knows it was a sacred site, and your own personal experience there tells you it's a sacred site. And then uh, when you're asked questions, it's like proving that it's a sacred site is impossible because the creator put it down Mm -hmm. there like that, Mm -hmm. not for scientists Mm -hmm. to figure out whether it is or isn't. However, there are some scientific research that does produce Mm -hmm. uh, magnetic fields, it has uh, more energy, it can have, you know, a number of things that will puzzle uh, scientists, but in the indigenous world, it just is, and because it is, it's like I always think that if if modern man saw God now, he would say, "Prove me, prove to me that you are God." <laughs> <laughs> right?
2: Sure. We yeah. all we all <laughs> doubt. It. Yes. Yeah. We have yeah. to
4: prove it, and so films like Toby's. Uh, I think the important thing for us as indigenous leaders and, and people who take care of the lands is is that we do see other parts of the world that are in place. Like my grandma said, there's 20 sacred mountains in the world. Well, so far I've gotten to see New Zealand has a very sacred mountain, Mount Araki, and that uh, Danil's land has a very important mountain, you know, Mount Ujimaik, and that these places are so important to the life of people that they don't even know it you know and what happens in one mountain or into the one water systems happens to all of us I mean we sing to our water because that water goes around the world we don't know where it comes up when it comes up out of the ground but it was the very first time that it dried up and that was a a big message to us that we're at the tipping point we're at the tipping point of what the world will look like in the future and so far, most of our scientists have not caught up with us. Yeah.
1: So this is, I think, we've, we've seen the film. You made the film. So you know what's in it. And for the people who are listening, I think there's a, a, an element that hasn't really come through so fully, which is actually what's happening to these sites. And that's things like, like nickel mines. And zinc mines and how the people who live in Papua New Guinea can no longer fish in their rivers and how they have to be displaced out of their homes and the Ethiopian people lost their land, which is proven to be the most biodiverse and rich land. All of these things that are happening as a product of of this, um, this modern Western tar world. Tar sands in Alaska. Yeah, tar sand, which Ancient petroleum products, there are plenty that we could just live without, but we'll save that <laughs> for another conversation. But something that's, that's a really interesting question for me, my parents live in Hawaii, they're on the Big Island. They love living there, they love the spiritual culture, and they've observed what's happening with the commercial industry. And you guys talk about Lave, which is one of the islands in in Hawaii that was used for bombing targets and it's no longer inhabitable, and what they're doing to try and make it it a a sacred site again that it is, or or recover the sacredness of it. But with this commercial development, It's interesting how how one of the gentlemen, I think, from Papua New Guinea was very happy that the mine came because he said, we're going to get health care, we're going to get education, we're going to get these things that our community has never had. And yet at the same time, they lost the land and they lost the ability to eat off their land and from their rivers. So so have you observed in the many years you spent traveling the world to do this documentary a place where the commercial development and the sacredness and the community could coexist exist peacefully is that even possible
5: it's a it's a very good question because we are so imbalanced in our commercial pursuits that um, and indigenous people have been so robbed of their land and culture and their sacred places that that it's it's very hard to find these kinds of good examples there are now what what we're calling in the international vocabulary indigenous protected areas. There are places where native people have sovereignty, have regained the land and control of their sacred places, and they're managing them. In Australia, you have controlled burns going on again so that they avoid the catastrophic wildfires. They're free to do their ceremonies at their sacred places. Kaholawe is a good example of a place that they have regained control over the island. There are bombs left in the soil. And the debate now there is, well, how do we pay for this? You know, we have, we have to keep, you know, so far it's been all volunteer, non-financially based. Uh, the Protect Kaho'olawe Ohana takes volunteers out there. They're regenerating their culture. Their definition of, of ecology involves rain ceremonies and prayer, not just planting trees and bushes and things. Um, but they're debating whether to build windmills, whether because they have to generate some kind of economic, you know, to live in this modern world, you need to have some form of of, of economic base. So I think most indigenous people are struggling with this issue of how do you protect the sacredness of a, of a certain area and potentially allow some kind, what is an appropriate form of economic development? Mm-hmm. Tourism is a really good example of this. You know, the, the concept of ecotourism, the concept of going to these places carefully with respect, guided by the leaders, you know, some indigenous people do want to share some information or take people to sacred places to have that experience. But tourism tends to be exploitive. You know, you sometimes select within the culture for people who are not the right people to take people in there. Mm -hmm. So, you know,
0: you put your finger on a very important challenge. Mm -hmm. Killeen, do you want to comment on that as well? Seems like you're burning (laughs) with an answer.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Well, of course, I'm a little more cynical. (laughs) (laughs) and I don't think that uh, the sacred places can coexist Mm -hmm. with people, not just the commercialism, but even in our sacred place. There's no way that we could go and live at that spring because it just doesn't, it's not right. Mm -hmm. We can't do that, you know, and that we have certain places that only men go to or only women go to, and to say we're going to build the village right on that spot would be wrong. And, and so yeah, you were, you were saying
0: bringing the offering also means bringing the most love. It's not like a dumping ground for your sins, right, by any means. This is something that is being revered, and you should come as prepared and as positive, because over time you're kind of using that very, very positive energy for your sake. That's not what it's about, right? Right. It's a, it's a sacred site that we wanna keep intact and as honored and revered and not go there to recharge, take the energy away and then leave and then come back two weeks later. That's not the idea of a sacred that's site. That's not the idea. Yeah, and that's which what we was struggle really beautifully with. beautifully documented. Yeah. Um, we're talking about the film Standing on Sacred Ground with the filmmaker, Toby McLeod and the spiritual leader-in-chief of the Winnemem Wintu tribe at the McLeod River near Mount Chester, Calleen Sisk. We are out of time, unfortunately. Uh, I'm Helge Helberg. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> We're out of time. I'm Helge Helberg. Mark Mulcahy.
1: <laughs> and Sitarani Palomar. We but could talk about this we, for um, weeks and
6: weeks.
0: And Kaleen, if you have a very, very short blessing for this show and this film and this humble studio to spread the good word of the importance of all of our work whatever capacity that may be is there something that comes to mind that you could do for us?
4: Sure. Yeah? Olalabas chalibita ukawin illui chalama tsukeda chalama purum huwana chala winemim wintu huwana mim norawai wakit huwana chala so, um, and I've asked that the, the prayers of the people who are here and who are listening to us as well to open their minds and their hearts to the, to the waters and the ancient salmon that uh, run in our state here, our you know, Winnemum, Waiwakitur, that our, our place here, that it uh, bring all good things.
0: Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks for coming in. Thanks mm-hmm. for that blessing. For and lovely. good luck with the film. It's wonderful and so important. Thank you we very much.
1: Yes. We hope it reaches many, many, many ears. Yes. Oh, nice.
0: Check out yes. facebook.com forward confirma- slash uh, conversation for more information there and also uh, organicconversation.com, and we will post um, all the places where you can watch standing on sacred ground. Again, that website is sacredland.org. We'll be right back with more. Stay tuned. Life's a game, and so is work. And just like any game, sometimes your team is in a slump. Maybe it's a new team, maybe there's conflict, maybe you're under pressure to keep up with your own success. Whatever it is, it is time to get your game face on. The Ultimate Game of Work combines game design with executive coaching to create high-engagement workplaces. Boost your team's creativity and performance by designing the game you want to play and win together with The Ultimate Game of Work. Enticed? Learn more at ultimategameofwork.com.
3: Are you a chef, have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, walk right in to Earl's Organic Produce. Anyone can buy directly from us at wholesale prices. You don't have to be a natural food store to enjoy the freshest and most delicious organic produce. We are located on the San Francisco Produce Market at 2101 Gerald Avenue, we look forward to seeing you. Walk-in hours are Monday through Friday throughout the night from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. Minimum purchase is one box or flat, cash or checks only. For more information, visit EarlsOrganic.com.
1: You're listening to An Organic Conversation.
0: And I'm Helga Helberg. I'm Mark Bocke. And
1: I'm Sitarani Palomar.
0: Our topic today, Sacred Grounds. Sacred Ground, protecting the relationship to place uh, with the filmmaker of Standing on Sacred Ground, a documentary, four-part documentary that is now coming to movie theaters and it's kind of a must-see. We don't say that too often, but this one, hopefully, you get to see. Um, more information also on sacredland.org. I'm Helge Hellberg. I'm Mark Mulcahy. And
1: I'm Sitor Ronnie Palomar.
2: You know, the, so many things going through my mind right now, but it, it, what brought up, We were they were talking about, when we were talking about sacred sites, when I was traveling through northern, northern Spain, I went to 25 churches, beautiful churches, and they were nice. And there was this one spot when I was on the top of a hill where the Virgin Mary had been said to appear. And I didn't know that. But there was just this little teeny chapel. And I walked up there and I instantly felt something that I didn't have no idea of why I would do that. And it made me realize when, when li- listening to our guests is that mm. there are places that you, if you're just there f- at the moment, you don't even have to be told. You can feel that there's something going on there that it might even be completely unexplained to you.
1: Yeah, I had an experience like that in Peru. M- Machu Picchu. <laughs> it wasn't at Machu Picchu. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I had an Tell amazing us. experience at what Machu Picchu. But we went to a site called Sacsayhuaman, which is um, up uh, in, in the highlands, I believe, uh, past Cusco. Um, in Peru so so we went to this site and, and as we were walking onto the land and, and our and our guide was a native Peruvian woman and she was kind of orienting us to what the importance was of this site and there was one large stone that was that was in the site that I just like zoomed in on it just it was like a beacon and I asked her if I could walk over there and she and I said it's something about that is is calling me can I walk over there And she said, yes, you should know that the Peruvian people believed that that rock right there was a doorway between this world and the next. And they believed that if you stand at that doorway and you listen closely enough, you can hear whispering of your ancestors from the other side. And it's amazing how you get in the presence of something sacred, and it's something otherworldly. You recognize that there's something else happening in this moment and in this place that is not like any other place you've been. Mm-hmm.
0: I love that Toby Toby McLeod, the filmmaker, was saying that um, this is kind of a, a, you know a, a baby or a movement coming out of the organic food movement because that connection to land, to place, to what's sacred, to food, to the commons, um, you know all finds its its source or its beginning or a beginning um, in this local organic food movement that we are experiencing throughout the country. one Yet one other layer of what food can do. And that's, of course, a good segue for the next segment because it is produce time talking <laughs> about organic foods. <laughs> Here's our very own Mark Mokehi and the weekly tip from the world of the produce docs. Here's what's
2: in season. It is what's in season, and it being fall, we're going to talk about persimmons. And of course, if I'm going to be talking about produce, I've got to have my old pal, Earl Herrick, the voice of the San Francisco market <laughs> from Earl's Organic Produce in San Francisco, on to join me and us for this uh, topic of persimmons. It's fall, it's persimmons. Are you there, Earl? Hey, Mark. How you doing?
3: <laughs> I'm great, boy. This has got some great fall weather.
2: Oh, it's just gorgeous.
3: <laughs> so speaking
2: of speaking of fall weather, when I drive around living in California, one of the things that reminds me of it's fall, that besides the falling leaves and the beautiful, you know, cool, crisp mornings, is the trees start showing that there'll be globes that are just sitting there. The fol- foliage is going away, but then there's trees with these orange globes that are just hanging, just in the air and they're just so beautiful um, and I'm talking about high chia persimmons
3: yeah and you know as the season goes on it becomes even more stark as the leaves fall and then you have this wonderful beautiful kind of stark uh, tree with these ornamental orange globes hanging from it it's, very, it's a wonderful contrast it's one of the most favorite things <laughs> I love to view as I'm driving around California so what
2: about so, persimmons? Let's give, give us a little bit of information on the season, what's yeah, going well, on, you know, tell us a little bit about all them. With the
3: development of uh, storage technology and plant breeding and global shipping, we're accustomed to having a certain fruits around all the time, you know, apples and pears and citrus. So one of the beautiful things about persimmons is they have a sh- very short window. We're talking October through December. And you're not going to be storing these. They're not going to be hanging out. They're not come, being shipped up from, you know, the Southern Hemisphere. It's a very local thing. California really pretty much is 100% of the production in the United States, Though so there are other states that, that have them. So this is the time to enjoy this very, very unique fruit, and this is a great year. Uh, low moisture, good temperatures, uh, perfect pollination. There's a lot of product out there which is going to mean a couple things. One, there's going to be more small fruit, which the benefit of that is, is that you can get some great bargains because, because small fruit to a lot of people is just less appealing, and they're willing to pay. I mean, you can get you get them for a buck each, maybe even two for a buck and a half. Now, the bigger ones, they're going to be more money. Uh, there, there's less production of that. So, you know, supply and demand, high high demand, low supply, Big fruit's going to go anywhere from sometimes 2 to $3 per unit. And I'm talking the Fuyu's or the Hai Chias at this point. You there?
2: Yeah. So, well, what I, I was just thinking about Hai Chi is, so they're, they're, they're going to be in abundance. They're going to be a little bit smaller. They're going to be good prices. And yes. so, you know, if people are going out there and looking to buy them, what are they looking for?
3: Yeah, you want to buy, so, you know, we can get into the distinguishing either variety, but you're looking for color. That's really the main thing. And, of course, of uh, cosmetically sound product, meaning that they don't, have, they don't have little chips in them or bird pecks or twig rubs, even though many times that's fine. But you're looking for good color, uh, nice shape, which we call typing. That's really it. The color is going to indicate more times than not the sweetness, the sugar development. Mm-hmm.
1: And so you and want some. you're something... going to
3: harvest some. Wait till they get really, really good color. Or, you know, some, what I do sometimes is i wait till the first bird peck on some of the outer pieces of fruit and then I'll harvest them all because the birds tell <laughs> me they're ready right <laughs> now. And
0: those are the ones that are yummy even if they're firm, right? You don't have well, to No, other you. way
3: around.
1: Oh,
0: other you. way, I never get it the straight. Ha- when I see chias, them I know which one, but okay.
1: The haichias look like acorns, right? And you want exactly. them to be kind of that orangey color Really
2: deep, and super, deep orange. super, super yeah. soft. Yeah.
1: Otherwise, the other day we were talking about astringents you know, and how it takes yes, all the moisture the out of your mouth with the dates that's what happens when you eat an unripe and you almost cannot a high chia. buy
0: hachia uh, fully ripe, ready to eat, and get it home safely not at, because not it, will, it will break. Yeah. So yeah. you should buy it and then, and then I don't, do you turn it? it? You
2: leave it. You just at, buy it when it's ripe and just bite into it. But how do
0: you store it at home? You just t- keep turning
2: you it, could or keep it on your counter. And it's got a flat top. So, I mean, so you can literally oh, set yeah, it on the, the top, so good, good the, the top, of the point of the acornish shape would be facing up. Fun. And then they'll get, they'll start turning deeper and deeper orange, and you'll start seeing them actually become translucent and get, uh-huh. as they're mm-hmm. getting soft. He, yeah. And that could be seven to ten days. Yeah, yeah. And you have to pay attention to it because once they start, we're talking pudding, right? I mean, and the, and the then consistency. It's just, is, oh, the, yeah. It's you almost like,
1: want to see the skins wrinkle, right? That's when you know how soft it is on the inside. Well,
2: it, there's a little bit of a wrinkling going on but there's also a translucence that Mm -hmm. goes on you can Mm -hmm. almost see into the fruit for the high chia and if you're impatient you can (laughs) stick them in your freezer overnight and then pull them out and they will get that same softness and lose that astringent uh, same same
0: flavor Earl? if you do the freezer trick
3: well the same flavor in terms of of the same persimmon or Fr- or the, a, a on, being on the frozen high heat. Like
0: if you speed it up in the freezer, will it come out the same?
3: Yeah, it's, yeah. Your flavor is going to be pretty much the same. Now, um, you could <laughs> maybe lose a little bit in the sugar, but you know it's pretty insignificant. Yeah, Mike is you know, shaking and his when head. when we say soft, <laughs> <laughs> you, it's hard to e- overestimate how soft. You're, you're talking Jello. You, yeah. And yeah. I think so, I heard somebody say pudding. Pudding. Yeah, yeah.
0: Raw, raw egg. Exactly. You want to be as yeah. careful careful with it as you can possibly be.
2: But the Fuyus, which is the flatter-looking persimmon that you were talking yeah. about, that can be eaten firm. So much firmer. You can let it get a little bit soft, first and that's fine. First. But you can eat it firm and just slice it up. And and it actually, when you almost, when almost. Yeah. yeah, like an apple. And or when pear. you slice it uh, diagonally, it actually, there's a star in the center of the, uh, the fuyu It's very beautiful and very tasty.
0: Cool. I love that picture of, like, almost Christmas tree-like persimmon trees where they really look like they were hung there. Like ornaments. It can yeah. be real. <laughs> Wonderful.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, lovely.
0: Thank you, Earl.
3: Yeah, thank you so hey, much for joining us again, and Earl. you And you know, the haichias originally were the most popular of the, of the persimmons, and the Fuyus have overtaken it in the last couple of years. And I think that's because of the ripening process uh-huh. that the sure. haichia needs.
0: Yeah. It's hard, to you is but it's
3: much more available and accessible Yeah, difficult, right but away. worth
0: it.
1: <laughs> Thanks <laughs> Thank so much. Thank you so much, Earl. Happy always, Christmas always a pleasure. We'll talk whatever, to you next week. <laughs> whenever
0: you eat those now. Always Good to always have always you. Always great to talk to you. Pleasure. Thank easy. you.
1: Bye now. Delicious.
0: <laughs> nice. Well, there's no time for an organic moment, but I feel like, especially with this ending on Persimmons, <laughs> this whole show was the best organic moment we've ever had. So, um, yeah, wonderful. Thanks, Mark, for what's in season.
1: Yeah, it was a really terrific episode and touching. And we know that we'll be back with more next week. So, thanks for joining Always. us. And mm-hmm. we'll <laughs> see you next week on <laughs> an organic conversation.
6: Bye Bye-bye. bye. Bye bye. We just stood there getting wet with our backs against the fence. Oh, the water! Oh, the water! Oh, the water! Hope oh, it oh, don't rain all day. And it torn me to my soul. Storm be just like jelly road, and it's me yet it's storm me to my soul Stone beat just like going home, and it's done me And the rain lit up and the sun came up, we were getting dry Almost let up in a truck. Nearly passed us by, so he jumped right in in the driver's lane. Then he dropped us up the road. Yeah, we looked at the swim, and we jumped right in. Not to mention fishing poles.